Welcome to Sky Team's People First with Morag Barrett. Welcome to this week's episode of People First. And my guest this week is fascinating. His name is Atif Rafiq, and he is the best-selling author of Decision Sprint, the new way to innovate into the unknown and move from strategy to action. He is the founder and CEO of Ritual, a groundbreaking software app and an advisor to startups like SpaceX and Headspace. Throughout his career, Rafiq has shown passion for driving companies into the future. He's blazed trails in Silicon Valley and the Fortune 500 for more than 25 years. And after rising through digital native companies like Amazon, Yahoo, and AOL, remember that one, he held C-suites roles at McDonald's, Volvo, and MGM Resorts. Wow, that is a diverse set of industries and companies. Anyway, Rafiq was the first chief digital officer in the history of the Fortune 500, a pioneering role he held at McDonald's. And he was most recently president at MGM Resorts, a Fortune 300 company. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Morag. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I am so excited for our conversation. But first off, my opening question, the same. When you were a wee lad, what was your childhood dream? What did you want to be when you grew up? Well, I I, uh, commuted to my school in New York City. So I took the New York City subway system. And, um, you know, the subway system you interact with, you know, people who are commuting to work. So I was always sort of curious by people wearing suits and nice ties and seemed like they were making a lot of money going to all kinds of sporting matches after work. That seemed very glamorous to me. So probably when I was very young, I was pointing to those people saying, I want to be like that when I grow up. (laughs) All right. So do you go to many sporting functions after work? Well, I'm a huge sports fan. So, yes, I uh, have some season tickets for NFL football and mm-hmm. NBA. And I grew up playing uh, baseball in high school and college. And, you know, I love any sport. I love Premier League. Um, but, of course, I did not become a suit. So that's the good, <laughs> that's the silver lining. I tried it for two years. It wasn't for me. And I went in a, in a different direction. And I've stayed with that. Okay. Well, tell us a little bit about your career arc. Because as I shared in the introduction, the brands that you were part of are pretty diverse, both in terms of the nature of the work that they do, but my perception of the cultures of how work gets done within those. So as you reflect on the career to date, there is much more yet to come. Two things. Give me some of the, the highlights that stand out for you. And then what were some of the tough learnings along the way? Well, my story arc really <clears throat> is rooted in Silicon Valley, but then I make a metamorphosis into more, you know, traditional companies and cultures um, because I saw you know, the direction that those companies were going to need to take. So just to step back on that a little bit, of course, Silicon Valley, I, you know, it took me a while to get there. I had to do my two years in investment bank at Goldman Sachs and then kind of raise my hand to say, let me be the low man on the totem pole in a, in a tech company to sort of begin to prove myself and make the transition into tech. Once I did that, you know, I fell in love with, you know, the culture of Silicon Valley and the idea of going from zero to one. And so I did that um, both for established companies, but also started a, a software business of my own. And, and that was thrilling. Of course, there's ups and downs and all that. 
but that I thought I'd be doing that essentially for the entirety of my career. But about you know 15 years into that line of work, um, you know the world began to change, and every company viewed themselves as needing to respond to you know technology as a disruptor in terms of their customer experience or their business model. And companies like McDonald's came calling, and a CEO happened to reach out to me and talk about digitization as a big bet that they're going to make and biggest uh, bet they're going to, you know, the company is going to have got, got behind in the last 10 years. So uh, when I joined McDonald's as the first CDO in the Fortune 500, I began to get to the other side of the table, working with incumbents that, you know, weren't moving as fast as they need to and needed to sort of, uh, you know, boost their agility. And that was, of course, a very different recipe in terms of how you get an organization to move. Um, you know, I learned a lot. I made stepped into some pitfalls, made some progress, and I kept refining my formula. Eventually, it led me to a point where, you know, I understood how to get a traditional company that's less comfortable with change and unknowns to actually embrace it. And so, yes, I, I guess just <clears throat> necessity is the mother of invention. And so how you bring that to organizations that don't have, you know, innovation necessarily in their DNA is something I, I sort of picked up along the way. So we're going to dive more into the insights within your book and that methodology and the work that you've done with teams. But before that, tell me a little bit more about the role relationships have pay, played, because you talked there about incumbents who may not be moving as fast as their colleagues or the industry requires. You no doubt have met naysayers or the, well, it ain't broke, so why do we need to fix it? So what role have relationships played in your journey to date? Well, I think you, in a workplace setting, you have multiple types of relationships. Sometimes you work for somebody, often you do. You have peers and then you, let's say, have team members um, who may work for you or they may just be sort of, you know, you, you might be in a position position of leadership relative to these folks too. Those are three different <clears throat> types of relationships. For me specifically, I think part of uh, what has helped me with the missions I've been driving in organizations is actually team uh, team culture and a feeling of teamwork, um, which is, I think, uh, underserved uh, opportunity for leaders because, and let me give you some examples. So. When you're, you're in a position of authority, often people are looking for you to tell them what to do, A, and mm -hmm. B, they're looking for, you know, uh, to for affirmation and they don't want to make mistakes. They want to impress you. Um, but when you set an environment of, cult, you know, psychological safety uh, where people can, can be open, they can talk about what they know, what they don't know, they don't have to be a know-it-all, um, where you give them space to sort of come up a learning curve around the problems we're trying to solve um, and, and do it together. Um, this, I think, is is very, very powerful. So the relationships I've looked to cultivate over my career are essentially really focused on helping a team feel like they're going to be able to do their best work, uh, not really be sort of uh, limited by judgment, and that they're going to be able to grow as they tackle new hard problems. And this is personally served me well because it's allowed me to actually bring people that I've grown and helped um, develop through different uh, organizations I've been part of 
it's kind of like an idea that they want to be part. They know what they're going to get. They're going to get the support. Um, and so from a relationship standpoint, that's where I think uh, you, you can see a relationship between, you know, how you treat people, the results you get around innovation, and then people's uh, kind of level of investment in, in wanting to be part of something big and interesting. So I think you touch on that in both of um, our books. We talk about the the three drivers for all of us. And Dan Pink has a great uh, short video on this, but it's that feeling like we belong, the psychological safety and trust to make informed risks. And if I make mistakes, it's not going to be held against me. That my voice and opinion matters, that somebody's listening and the ability to do my best work. And it sounds like those themes have been woven through all of your work to date. So I'm just curious as to why now, why that pivot to sharing the work that you've been doing in a more explicit and front forward way than just as part of your everyday? Well, I felt a calling to sort of, um, I don't want to say document, but basically put together a lot of the things I've been privileged enough to learn along the way about what works and what doesn't work. Uh, so that other people don't have to go through the same pitfall. <laughs> and quite frankly, so that we can make the workplace better for people because we spend a lot of time, you know, with our work and with our colleagues. And I just think that, you know, a lot of workplaces are not sustainable. That's where I hear what I hear from people time and time again. And what I mean by that is maybe the right things are being done, maybe good and big things are being done but the lift to get there is just too much of a tax, right? And so how do we get both? How do we move the needle for our organizations but have a more sustainable workplace? And it does come down to, you know, the things that, the three things that you mentioned because everyone in the workplace is looking to make a contribution. So how things get done really does matter. It's not just the what, we get out the door and deliver for our business or organizations. It's how we do it um, in terms of how people are made to feel around their contribution and whether we get the quality of contribution we need to begin with. You make my heart sing when you talk about that. So you call the book Decision Sprint. Decision Sprint, a new way to innovate into the unknown and move from strategy to action. So let's just start with the basics. Why decision sprint? Why might I or a leader in an organization need a decision sprint? Well, it's it's a couple of reasons, Mark. Basically, when people think about decision making, everybody wants high quality, you know, fast, high velocity decision making. But what's counterintuitive is that um, in order to achieve that, we have to set the, we set the tables much further upstream from the decision points. So if you're mm. at a decision point, you know, you probably, um, a team has probably worked weeks or months to kind of get to that point where it's late, you know, it's investigated the right issues. Uh, it's done detective work. It's formed conclusions. It's developed recommendations. This team is now ready to drive a decision in the organization. So a lot of times people get confused with well, why did we make certain decisions? Like, why did we water down the idea? Why did we lack courage and boldness? Or uh, why did we maybe navigate this fork in the road uh, the wrong way, right? And the answer is because it's the weeks and months of works um, that happened before that and the collaboration around that 
which then show up as symptoms at the decision point. So I gave this <clears throat> those weeks and months a name. I call it yeah. upstream. It's the upstream part of the journey. And uh, I sort of demystify upstream work, all the steps involved, some of the pitfalls, and how to make it go well um, so that we can go from the ambitions that we have to, you know, to action and not compromise on the on, on those ambitions. So that that's sort of the main um, reason why. And the reason why it matters now is because uh, what you're doing in any industry or as any team problem solving something new or novel for an organization, it's going to be about entering new territory. There's nowhere to look for, you know, how did we do it before? You're basically solving new problems for your organization. It's going to come with a ton of uncertainty and ambiguity at the start. And so that is a lot of what team-based collaboration is around, you know, wrestling mm-hmm. with trying to make sense of it. And rather than leaving that to chance or personality, you know, what I tried to put together is a system for how to do it well. It's interesting. There's so much going through my mind as I listen to you talk here, because what you're doing is you're getting ahead of the decision and decisions in my experience with the leaders I'm working with, it's when there isn't a clear path forward or there are three options equally as good or less worse than each other, if you see what I mean. But opinions are already differing as to which one we should take. Emotions are heightened. Maybe we're arguing and fighting over it. And at that point, the listening and learning and collaboration tends to go down. So what are some of those common pitfalls that you're trying to anticipate and solve for in this process? The very first is alignment before exploration. And what that means is um, the idea that, you know, a rush to judgment is a very dangerous thing in an organization. And quite frankly, the more experience you have and the more proven you are within an organization, the more at risk you are to rush to judgment. Uh, One, because you can, because you may be in a senior position. And the second is because you have a ton of relevant experience. But most new problems or new territory companies are entering come with just as many unknowns as knowns. And if we don't do a good job of surfacing these unknowns, making them actionable, knowing what the right questions are, allowing space for teams to actually do their best work to get to the bottom of these questions before we draw conclusions, then it's very possible that we're rushing to judgment and therefore trying to align because it's very obvious to us what the right answer is. This is actually, you know, a breakdown in a few things yeah. doesn't allow for you to leverage the collective intelligence of the organization. And eventually it does lead to people maybe drawing different conclusions, not being able to explain why or reconcile that. And that gets to the human factors, very emotional and then mm-hmm. less about the fact base or the reasoning and more about other things, all very dangerous things and things that impact teams. This is actually what makes work stressful for for your kind of your average employee in a company where they think the company doesn't know what it actually really wants to accomplish. So we can get ahead of all this by having, you know, some type of workflow, nothing super structured, but just even this mantra of exploration before alignment, I think alleviates a lot of this. Feels almost so chicken and egg, hindsight 2020. How would I know if I'm rushing to judgment in order to 
learn and grow because if I rush to judgment and it works out, I'm going to get that uh, correlation of, hey, I'm smart to make quick decisions. So how does one break the cycle and what's the first step then in setting that uh, alignment and understanding early with the right people? I think just a, a couple of simple steps. One is clarifying the problem we're trying to solve. So having a problem statement is very, mm-hmm. very critical. Let's say I'm Netflix and the CEO says, wow, you know, we're really suffering here. A lot of people are sharing their passwords and we're not getting enough subscribers. If the problem statement is, you know, shut this uh, problem down, you're going to get one form of action. Uh, if, if, however, you frame the problem statement is how do we balance the needs of the business with, you know, the needs of the user, you're going to get a very different kind of recommendation on the table eventually. So you need to start all the way upstream by having a clear problem statement. And then to uh, cross this fork in the road, you need to identify all the right questions that need to be um, you know, considered. And those questions are often very diverse, different subject matters. Um, and you need to spend time sourcing these questions. So the way to avoid alignment before exploration is actually to build an exploration by populating it with the right questions and actually consider that uh, a milestone in the work. So, for example, in my leadership roles, if a team came to me and said, we need a week just to, you know, talk to four or five relevant stakeholders and develop a good question list, I would say, fantastic. That's actually going to speed things up for us in the end. Okay. So fascinating things. I mean, one of the hot topics right now, everybody's talking about AI, and I've had a little play with ChatGPT myself. Do not expect to be an expert in this. But what is the role of AI in all of this and even in making decisions or the process by which organizations are going to be experiencing innovation and creativity and growth? Uh, it's It plays a very essential role. The net effect will be to speed things up um, and help um, basically uh, help people avoid blind spots. So l- let me share some examples. Mm. I mean, if you went to a working team and you said, here's the problem statement, here's the problem we're trying to solve, what are the relevant questions that we should be thinking about, you're going to get some great input. If you then um, ask you know, a, a language model, hey, what are related questions that we should also be considering, maybe we haven't thought of, you're going to get a very good su- uh, set of suggestions. So AI is wonderful for suggestions that essentially round out potential blind spots in what we're thinking, just in terms of formulating uh, questions. Now, as you develop answers to these questions, you know, you can definitely um, get feedback from a from AI in terms of, hey, um, have I missed any considerations as I develop an answer to a question? Um, you know, how how is this answer sort of like, what's the quality of this answer? Does it have a weak link? Am I drawing a conclusion where I haven't provided a fact? Or could, is there a role for to have evidence or a proof point? I mean, that is all, those are all tasks that AI is going to be very, very good at. So we need to actually start integrating AI into our problem solving efforts. And I believe in the future of what I call people and prompts, where mm-hmm. companies that do it well, people and prompts and embrace this future are going to sort of disambiguate uh, things much faster. They're going to get to clarity much faster. They're going to be sitting on higher quality recommendations and they're going to take more confident decisions. It's 
fascinating for me. And one of the bits that caused me to pause and chuckle a little bit is in the book, you talk about Peter Drucker. And for those who are listening or watching who may not be familiar with the name of Peter Drucker, well, he is the father of modern management theory and uh, you need to check him out. However, you say that Peter Drucker would roll over in his grave with some of the concepts you've put in here. So why are the ideas that you're sharing in your book so transformative? And how do you see the the world of management shifting? Well, yeah, my reference to Peter Drucker uh, is, is kind of my attempt at humor. But, but yes, I mean, Peter Drucker, as you mentioned, sort of set the tone for everything you've seen in management from companies like General Motors being sort of the first um, I would say really corporate um, kind of system that existed and leading to companies like GE, which then became a template and a model for, you know, a couple of decades, but all of which are kind of not relevant at all anymore. Sorry to say, um, because they were designed for a world of stability for annual planning for, mm-hmm. you know, where scale, was the major advantage and allowed you to uh, kind of dominate and perpetuate domination. But, you know, we're living in an environment where it's uncertainty, it's ambiguity, uh, it's so constant across everything where um, the advantage is around the speed of learning. So it's more, you know, a company like Amazon where I used to work, where you don't know a lot about the category you're entering in the beginning, but you learn the quickest about the things you need to know and that, as a result, you kind of put your finger on the right strategy, you know, um, more often than not. Not always, but more often than not. So we're in an environment where the speed of learning matters more, um, and we're not in stable environments. And so we need very different systems and organizations. Unfortunately, I would say most Fortune 500s are still, um, you know, kind of built on the basis of, uh, you know, a management theory and system around execution is king and execution is what matters. And I fully agree with that, but it's not enough. And so mm-hmm. I think something to complement that, which is what I call an upstream system where you have a lot more questions than answers because you cannot address uh, upstream problems before you get to decisions with an execution culture. It's not a fit. So we've used the word strategy a few times. We've talked about decision-making. Who is the book targeted for? Who's going to get the most benefit from reading your book? Um, I'm really trying to help teams. So if you're responsible for an initiative that could be strategic or maybe a new problem that's come up, but it's ambiguous how to solve it. Um, and you've, you know, you're a member of a working team or maybe you're leading a working team um, and you need to go from, you know, here's what I've been charged with as the objective or the idea that's promising. Now, how do I get and navigate through the process of thinking through all the right considerations, doing high quality exploration, drawing conclusions, being able to defend the conclusions that we're making as a team, put sound recommendations on the table and unlock decision-making. Because my nirvana for teams is essentially non-decision decision meetings, which is like Mm -hmm. you have a decision meeting is scheduled for 30 minutes and after five minutes, people are like, this makes yeah. sense. You know, we understand how you got here. Uh, why are we even having this meeting? And there's, it's it's just um, a much lighter lift to get there. 
and it's more clear, you know, what the right action should be for, for companies. So to unlock that for teams is mainly how I, who I wrote the book for. That being said, you know, of course, there's a lot of interest from very high level people and companies saying, oh, I want that not only for one or two initiatives, but for, you know, kind of all the, all of our strategic work or all of the, you know, uh, very important initiatives that are not kind of standard execution. I want that more systematically. And so that is also uh, a great opportunity for senior leaders to set up a system that can help their companies endure for the coming decades. Okay. As we come to the end of our time together, Atif, what final words do you have for our listeners, but also where can people go to learn more about you and the work that you're doing? Well, I think uh, innovation is a word that means different things to different people, but I use it very broadly, very liberally, meaning, you know, anything that's not standard execution. So I think a lot of, we need a lot of parts of our organizations to be innovating all the time, continuous problem solving and innovating. And that is actually an upskilling that we need to invest in. And rather than leaving it to chance or personality, it's better to have a, a system um, for it and a, a system that brings out the best in people and lets a lot of uh, people, whether they're very creative people or, or practical people, contribute to that. So I'm, my final word is around trying to be systematic about you know establishing a culture of problem solving. Um, my work today involves Decision Sprint. The website is decisionsprint.com, where you can keep up with how things are going with the book. Um, I'm also a co-founder and CEO of a software company called Ritual, which provides workflow and AI to help teams problem solve, an app they can download from the app store. So we can be found at ritual.work. And of course, I'm reachable on, uh, on LinkedIn, where I also publish uh, one of their top newsletters. Atif, thank you for your time today. I'll make sure all of that information is in the show notes before. If you've enjoyed this conversation, make sure to hit that little subscribe and bell. But my thanks to Atif Rafiq, who is the founder of, as he's shared, Ritual, ritual.work. Did I get that right? No. Well, remind me of the website. <laughs> oh, you got it, ritual.work. I got it. There you go, ritual.work. I was listening. He is also the author of Decision Sprint, the new way to innovate into the unknown and move from strategy to action available from all book retailers. Make sure to get your copy on order today. Again, thank you. I look forward to our paths crossing again. Wish you ongoing success and a ton of fun. Likewise, it's been a privilege to join you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining Morag today. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. If you learned something worth sharing, share it. Cultivate your relationships today when you don't need anything, before you need something. Be sure to follow Sky Team and Morag on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you have any ideas about topics we should tackle, interviews we should do, or if you yourself would like to be on the show, drop us a line at info at skyteam.com. That's S-K-Y-E team.com. Thanks again for joining us today. And remember, business is personal and relationships matter. We are your allies.